what a joy uh, to be on the platform with some of the dearest pastor brothers in my life. I either correspond or talk to or have fellowship and dinner with these brothers all quite regularly, either if I'm at their place or they're here with me or we live close enough to be able to do it. And so all of these brothers were so very kind enough to communicate that, number one, that they were coming to the memorial service of yesterday and that they would be available to be a part of a Q&A panel. And uh, I'm not sure unless there's a, a pretty large conference somewhere where uh, men are invited to either do plenary sessions or breakout sessions that you would have uh, seven or eight guys uh, in one place. Uh, and certainly, probably, uh, we might have set a precedent for doing this in a local church service, this many guys. Uh, so that I don't fall prey to what I'm nicknamed Lance Loquacious. Uh, instead of me introducing these brothers, perhaps I would allow them to introduce themselves because I'll go on and on and on about my relationship with every single one of them. So I think it would be great for our time because I want us to be able to have perhaps, you know, an hour and a half to, to be able to talk through some very, very important issues that affect Christians today. Uh, so why don't I have each of these men, I think they're just about all mic'd up here, uh, to, to give maybe their, their name, uh, what their current ministry is, perhaps how long you've been involved in vocational ministry of any kind, whether it's the pastorate, whether it's uh, mission ministry, uh, university ministry, seminary ministry. Uh, some of you are doing uh, several of those things at one time, uh, but whatever your ministry is, how long you've been in ministry, your name, uh, and, and perhaps I may jump in here or there if I think you just haven't really nailed our relationship. <laughs> All right, so we'll start with my colleague, Chris Brunziel, who most of you know, but we obviously have guests here. And Chris, you need to tell them about yourself. I thought I was going to be at the end. Uh, Chris Brunziel, Senior Associate Pastor here at Bethany, and uh, been in ministry for about 30 years, whether youth ministry or sports evangelism, but here for the last two years and in the area since 2006. Um, married to Renee, and I think that's good. All right, Sam. Uh, well, thank you, Lance, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Beth and I have been married 34 years uh, and have been in ministry together uh, formally in that capacity as well. So uh, have been a pastor um, on the church side, have always had uh, some involvement in Christian higher ed. And uh, since February, uh, I accepted the presidency of the Master's University and Seminary and so came... Uh, into that role in mid-March and um, moved my family out here in May and have been here since that time. I have experienced a couple of earthquakes and so uh, just very, very, feel very welcomed uh, here. And, uh, and Lance and I have, have known each other but I think really have gotten to know each other since that time. So Lance, it's a great privilege to be here today. Just so appreciative of Dr. Sam Horn being with us, become a very, very good friend 
and he is going to be a marvelous uh, leader for the Master's University and Seminary in the, the years to come. Uh, he's so personable, and he's so knowledgeable not only about his role there, uh, but he's also a theologian and a pastor, as he said. Uh, so I am grateful, and if I could just sort of give a plug, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but if you have young people uh, who you want to have, especially as you hear our Q&A panel and what we're going to be saying about our culture, uh, if you have a desire to have uh, your young people come and be a part of a, a truly distinctive <clears throat> Christian university, then by all means, whether you live in Southern California or not, please consider uh, enrolling them at the <clears throat> Master's University. Uh, you, will, you will not ever regret uh, that choice. Uh, some of my own kids, I think f five, maybe five of them, I had a couple of them that wanted to play like football, and they don't have football at the Master's University, but the rest of them uh, either spent time or graduated from the Master's University. Uh, and need I say anything about the Master's Seminary? Uh, I'm myself, I'm a three-time graduate of the Master's Seminary, and I think one, two, three, four, four, five of the men on this panel are graduates of the Master Seminary. So uh, that's probably its own endorsement. So uh, thank you, dear brother, for being with us. Todd? My name again is Todd Murray. My wife and I have been married 38 years. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. 38 years, and uh, we've, we've been ministry partners uh, for 28 years in Little Rock, Arkansas. About half of that 28 was, of course, uh, being mentored by Lance and serving together. And then for the last nine years, had the pleasure of being in Jupiter, Florida with Jerry Ragg, who's sitting beside Jerry this morning. There I have the privilege of doing family ministry and, uh, and teaching at the Expositor Seminary as well. I'm Bruce Walker and I graduated from the Master Seminary in 1997 and then went through the arduous ordination process at Grace Church with this cruel man two seats down on the left <laughs> and subsequently my wife and I who have six children our children played together I was discipled by Lance and Jerry at school at church and we planted a church in Greenville, South Carolina, 23 years ago, and I've been serving as the pastor there since then. My name is Bob Whitney, um, serving as the administrative dean of the Expositor Seminary, so I have the privilege of working with uh, the president of our school, Jerry Ragg, and, and with dear brother Todd Murray, and I've uh, been doing that for 15 years there, and uh, been in ministry since 1977 and uh, pastor it and a little bit in missions. Uh, but uh, just want to say thank you also to your, to this church because Lance has had such a, an amazing ministry with us in our seminary on our board and uh, as a campus pastor for quite a while and just a dear friend and uh, we appreciate his leadership uh, involvement in Expositor Seminary. Thanks, brother. Thank you, brother. My name is Kerry Hardy. Uh, my wife Pam is here. We've been married for 44 years. We married when we were 12 years old. <laughs> it's, been, it's been wonderful. 
uh, I left a, a career. I left a career. <laughs> left a career in pharmacy to pursue the ministry. So I think I've been in ministry a little over 35 years now. The last uh, 14 years as a pastor of Twin City Bible Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. But when I was in California attending seminary, I had the great joy of sitting across from Lance Quinn one morning at, uh, at breakfast at a JoJo's or something like that, whatever's out here. And we struck up a lifelong friendship and ministry relationship from that moment on. My name is Jeff Kratz. Uh, I first knew of Lance and met him back when I started seminary at age 22. Lance was still an associate pastor there, even then having several kids and um, on display as a, a leader to me and a, a godly uh, example. And when I went to Master's Seminary, I was employed at the same time at the Master's College then in the Student Life Department. So I was learning there and growing and met my wife, Judy. We've been married for 23 years, and uh, it all started back at Master's University in the dorm um, scene. And so uh, from there, we, I finished and graduated with my MDiv in 1998 and went to Little Rock, Arkansas. And that's where we began our, really, our young married life and had all six Razorback children in Arkansas. And I was the children's pastor, and so because Lance had eight children, it made our children's ministry large, and uh, <laughs> you know, it was church growth that way. And right. uh, many of those children are adults with children now, and that's been a real blessing and privilege to be around the Quinn family and a young adult children, so um, excited about that. And then after 11 years with Lance and serving with Todd and being mentored and shaped by these two men in particular, and at the end of that time, uh, uh, joining uh, back with the Doctor of Ministry program, I met Jerry, and so Jerry and I were schoolmates, and uh, we cut up in class a little bit together, so fond memories of, of learning and, and growing in that time, just a little bit. And then, uh, then up after uh, finishing my doctorate and one more year at Little Rock, went up to Anchorage, Alaska, which uh, I had met people in Anchorage when I was on the West Coast here who were from there, and so somehow they saw my resume and said, hey, come up there. And so Judy, myself, and our six kids have built a life there for the last 11 and a half years at Anchorage Grace Church, where I preach and am the senior pastor, and they have a, a pretty good-sized K-12 um, Christian school, probably like here. So it's a, a very dynamic place, and I'm thankful to the Lord to be there. So, yeah, 11 years so far. You know, what's interesting, too, about uh, Jeff's ministry there and what Bob Whitney said about the Expositor Seminary, the Expositor Seminary is a church-based form of theological education, and I believe there are 12 campuses, 11, 11 campuses now uh, in churches all around the country. And Jeff has the privilege at Anchorage Grace Church to also be one of the campuses of the Master Seminary. Uh, and you can obviously tell that these two seminaries are very closely aligned uh, with each other. So Jeff is uh, the coordinator of one of those campuses of the Master Seminary. So in addition to his pastoral duties, he has that responsibility as well. And I don't remember, Sam, how many seven campuses uh, around the country that uh, house the Master Seminary in their location. So uh, we're, just, we're just trying to get, you know, the opportunity to make seminary education not just affordable, 
uh, but local for so many churches that the, the young men <coughs> might not choose to either travel to Jupiter, Florida, uh, where the hub of, of TES is located, or here in Southern California where TM, TMS is located. So, Jeff, thank you for that. Jared? Well, speaking of you know our classroom antics, Lance taught us all that. No. Yes, yes, he did. Well, our time is gone. <laughs> it is not gone. I have the floor, brother. <laughs> so, Lance, I remember a winterum, Carrie, when you and I and Stuart and Lance sat in the back of a winterum. And if you were a student who who planned to leave the class early, as you were walking out, Lance would yell out. This is boring. I'm out of here. <laughs> Everyone would turn around and look at that student. <laughs> he did that all the time to people. You used to do that to Jim Pyle. You would open yeah. the door for Jim Pyle as you were late to class. Yeah. The professor would be up there teaching, yeah. and you would say, here I am, and then close the door <laughs> behind Jim. It's true. I've matured a little bit more <laughs> since then. Um, so I, I think I, I said yesterday, Lance and I have known each other for, you know, well, this morning mentioned it again, 30-some years. We met, uh, my wife Louise and I met Beth and Lance back in 86 when we came out to uh, Grace Church and to the seminary. <clears throat> but um, it's been such a precious relationship uh, because, as I said, Lance took me under his wing to mentor me in ministry things, and from the start, the guy... The guy understood pastoral ministry even at such a young age. I was marveling at all of his insights, pastoral insights. So I'm telling you things you already know, but that's been sweet in our friendship. Uh, my wife and I have been married, well, March will be 40 years, and uh, four children grown and married, and, and uh, they're all over the place and love the Lord. And uh, How many grandchildren? Uh, it's a lot. <laughs> I have to check their DNA testing sometimes. I think it's 16, and then 16. We, we have some kids that we adopted that are extended family members, and we, we include their little ones. So we're up to 20 is in the oven right now. So uh, it's true. At the holiday things, they come around. I'm like, you're, you're ours too? What, what's, what's your name? I know. You, 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 after a while, you just say, you know, with the eight kids, you know, I've forgotten your name. Tell me. And they tell me. I said, that's so helpful. Yep. Thank you. Lance, by the way, uh, we, we bonded one day on the golf course when he... Uh, Jerry, please don't tell that story. He struck me with a golf ball. <laughs> he shanked it's a true. five iron for you golfers and right into my elbow right here. It's true. On that, the first hole... That means you were standing near the it, hole, right? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I was way off to the side. No, it's true, but obviously I told him, Jerry, I'm so sorry I missed. I was going for your head. <laughs> <laughs> We've been beloved ever since. I sa I've said to Jerry for years watching his golf swing, especially on the tee, your problem is you're standing too close to the ball after you hit it. <laughs> Well, I, I, I need to, we're going to talk about golf. Okay. Oh, dear. Lance, I was there when you killed that duck. Yes, it's true. His first birdie. He, he teed off and topped it, and it went like a rocket and hit this goose or duck in the head and That's killed true. him. I mean, dead right there. I spent time in jail for the, uh, you know, <laughs> SPCA, you know, cruelty to animals. It is true. It was my first birdie. So. <laughs> Thank you.
<laughs> All right, enough of that. Enough of that foolishness. We are grateful that you are here with us, however you're listening or watching us, outside, inside, live streaming. We are grateful for these brothers being willing to, to come. And we want to get into some issues of great interest in our day, including matters of controversial interest among Christians. And so I sat down with my trusty little notebook, and I've come up with at least one question per man. I don't know exactly which one I want to ask a particular question. I've got a few ideas. But here's what I'd like to do. And they do not know what I'm going to ask them. Because if you heard all of their speakings about themselves, you know that they've been in ministry for two, three, four decades. Um, and so, therefore, if they can't answer these questions, they're disqualified from ministry. <laughs> So, but here's what I told them as they were just coming up here to sit down. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have you read some scripture because I want this to be a spiritual town hall get-together where you're not only hearing their answers to questions, but you're hearing scripture's answers to these questions through their giftedness. So I want to give them some passages of scripture. I may give them the question first and then the scripture, or I may have them read the scripture first and still not know my particular question for them as it relates to those passages. And then I'm going to ask them, and I may give them a couple of follow-up ideas, uh, but here's the first one. And I think, let's see, I think I may want to go with... Um, Don't make eye contact. Uh, <laughs> Carrie Hardy. Carrie Hardy. Guilty dog barks first. Um, and I may give you like a little theme that might help you remember uh, what the original question was because as you get going, and some of these men are quite aged, um, they might forget actually what the question was. This is a question that we might call, now this is not going to be something or something. It is going to be something slash something as a theme, but we want to find the biblical balance between those two things. So it's not pitting those things against each other necessarily, but there are going to be things that I want you as a panel to say, how would I approach one and or the other and give some biblical clarity to it? And the first one is this, Carrie Hardy, cautiousness slash Fear. Cautiousness slash fear. I think I'll give you the question first. Then I'll give you some passages that I want you to, to look up and to teach us from. Here's the question. Why do Christians fear the idea of death? Jerry, you, you actually mentioned that in your message this morning. Why do Christians fear the idea of death? and sometimes even talking about death. Why are multitudes of Christians, it seems, so fearful of the virus now known as COVID-19? What's the balance between being cautious with your health and fearful of COVID-19? Isn't that a current dilemma? Carrie, would you open us to Proverbs 29, 25? 
Proverbs 29, 25. I called upon Kerry because he's often, I know, brought this verse to bear in his pastoral counseling ministry with Christians. And I want Kerry to, to talk about Proverbs 29, 25 because this is actually a passage, believe it or not, that is contrasting a believer and an unbeliever. Now, you might not think of it because you might have known this verse before. You might have even read it. You may have even counseled somebody out of that passage. But remember, in the Proverbs, when it talks about somebody who is trusting in the Lord, that's talking about a believer. We call them in the, in the New Covenant Christian. But someone who is not a believer is called in the book of Proverbs many different names, many different ideas, and the contrast is there in Proverbs 29-25 that's talking about an unbeliever as over against a believer. So, Carrie, read that for us, and then I'll have two other passages for you. Proverbs 29-25, the fear of man brings a snare, but... He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Do you want to read the other passages? Or go ahead uh, why don't you start with that one, and then, then we'll, I'll, I'll put you to the others. I need just a moment. My wife is texting me the answers, so just, <laughs> just give me just a moment. Very helpful. You see the earpieces? We are getting the answers even as we speak. I'm going to catch it for that later, but um, <laughs> well, take the, just take the whole subject of fear, why, why do people fear anything? There can be a lot of uh, sort of sub-motivations in that, I think, you know, specific things that someone might fear even when it comes to death, but uh, I, I think from my perspective, the overall motivation is connected to loss in some way. They're, they're fearing some sort of loss. And so it could either be loss of, of life, uh, that just scares them. It, it could be the loss of their dreams and their goals, and so this thing represents the end of all of that in life as I have known it. The loss of my freedom, the loss of my uh, ability to live the life that I want to live. Uh, it, it could even be as specific as uh, there's a single person who desires to be married, and this represents I'll, I'll never, I never get to experience that. Mm. Uh, I, I'm married. We don't have children yet. I'll never get to experience that. It's the loss of that. Uh, it's, we don't have grandchildren yet. I, I don't, I don't want to die before I experience that. It goes on and on and on. But I think really at the heart of that, it's, it's, a, it's a fear of loss. Um, and I, I think that, that people don't really play that out, especially as a believer. Let's just say it from the standpoint of a believer. They don't, don't really play it out. I like to do that with, sometimes with people. What is it that you fear the most about that? What, what does that represent to you? Well, you know, if this happens, then, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up being this way. Well, what's the worst about that then for you? Hmm. Well, you know, then if that happens, I'm probably going to lose my house and, and my job. Well, what's the worst about that? Well, then I'm going to starve to death and I'll die. What's the worst about that? Well, I guess I'll go to heaven, you know. And, and I think people just don't think through it that way. Yeah. That what, what, what we lose here, and, and, you, and you, you certainly do lose things, it pales in comparison to what we gain uh, in heaven. 
And I think we, you know, believers forget that. And so certainly this verse, when you're talking about somebody that's in a snare, that, that's not a verse about don't have drums in the church. You know, the fear of man brings a snare drum. It's, I've heard it used for that, actually. But it's a, it's a verse about bondage. I mean, this is, this is what characterizes a person's life as a habit, as a lifestyle. Right. We are human beings, as Jerry said. We, we have a natural caution that should be built into us to be wise but, uh, about the things of this world. But at the same time, there is, a, there is something else that characterizes the true believer. And it is a choice. Okay? Just like worrying and fear is a choice. To have a troubled heart, as John 14 puts it, is a choice. That's why Christ says, don't let your heart be troubled. Okay? That indicates you have a role in this. Uh, and the answer then is trust. Trust in, in the Lord there, 14.1 of John. And so this is just a picture of that. The one who is a true believer keeps coming back to that. We may, we may fall, we may err, we may forget, but the Spirit of God within us keeps bringing us back to who we are, that we are those who trust the Lord. And at the end of the day, I need to reorient, my, reorient myself again that there is no loss when it comes to being in Christ. There is only gain. Even what I experience here is just the opportunity to live for Christ, as Paul said. Mm. Uh, but to die is, is gain. Kerry, when, when you think about this idea of the fear of man, fear of what man can do to me, whether it's a, an elected official, whether it's you know, someone who's your boss, um, it can, as you said, bring then uh, one of the second aspects of fear that we see in the Bible, and that's the fear of death. The fear of death. Coronavirus. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. What does that say? Well, Hebrews 2 makes it clear that that's, that is ultimately man's greatest fear. I don't know that some have ever articulated that, but if they really are pressed on it, I think they would have to admit that that is man's greatest fear that holds them in bondage, Hebrews says, all their lives. And so in Christ, we find that, that there's victory over death and over Satan and over this world, and there's life everlasting. But we're, we're kind of born into this world, you know, as unregenerate people. It's going to be natural to be in that state to fear death. So sometimes certainly is the fear of, of then I, I don't know where I'm going. You know, I, I don't know what the afterlife holds for me. And that, they ought to be fearful of that. We really should be. So Read, read that to us. Read uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And if you have your Bibles... Not only should you read it along with him, but, but write it either in your margin, some of the principles he's talking about, or write it on your, your notepad and really muse over this, this set of verses because it's very, very important. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. That's reminding us that th this is Satan's you know, greatest weapon against us. I mean, he likes to use a lot of things, but he knows how people are, and he knows what the, their flesh naturally is going to fear, and, and so he uses it as a weapon. And so this is telling us that Christ has removed you know, his, his greatest weapon against us. He's had victory over it. Verse 15, it might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And there's that picture of what characterizes somebody out of Christ. I mean, frankly, they ought to be fearful. There's no reason for them not to be fearful. But what an opportunity for a testimony for believers in the midst of all this, that we deal with similar struggles, 
as human beings, but what an opportunity for a testimony to this world, this culture, that we have a, a trust that supersedes all of that. That, yeah, I'm a, I'm a normal human being, but let me tell you about why, ultimately, I'm not in slavery to this. It's because of Christ. Right, if, if cautiousness and fear, cautiousness says coronavirus, well, everybody ought to wear a mask. Are we gonna, that's another question. Everybody needs to wear a mask. Everybody needs to socially distant. Now, you're in here. I'm looking around at least the in-person group who's hearing us, and I think I see one mask out there. How should then carry Christians relate to each other if some are choosing not to wear a mask? Does that automatically mean that they're not cautious? And if someone's wearing a mask, does that automatically mean they're in fear? And how should we as Christians get along together in unity with either masks, no masks, distancing, no distancing, etc.? Because Christians have gotten on to each other about these things. So there's, there's some level of fear. Who's right, who's so you're wrong? You're wanting me to answer that? Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know somebody's heart, but, you know, two people can be standing side by side and doing the exact same thing. Uh, I mean, you know, um, two men can be standing by, side by side and, and, and washing the dishes, you know, at their homes. It looks the same, but the motive in their heart can be something totally different. And, and so I can't just look at appearances, but in the heart, I do know what's possible. That person who is being cautious might actually be actually controlled by fear and she's hiding behind that word of caution, you know, that, that idea of caution. That, that's between them and the Lord ultimately. They need to be honest about that with the Lord in their own heart. Uh, the person who's at the other end not doing that and, and sort of giving the impression that, well, it looks like they're not fearful. No, that may not be what the issue at all is. They're very flippant and they just don't care about other people. And so that's sinful as well. They've, they've, somebody could be wearing a mask and be in sin or not in sin in their heart, and somebody could be not wearing a mask and be in sin in their heart or not. So it goes back to heart motivation. But the answer ultimately is something beyond each of us, and, and that is we're told over and over and over uh, that we, have to, we need to love one another. I mean, we're going to be living together forever in heaven if we know the Lord, and so we need to practice now what that looks like of loving one another, and that's going to include deferring to one another. So if I, if I actually know that something I'm doing or not doing is, is really disturbing someone to the point of violating their conscience, I, I need to be sensitive to that and show, show love to that. And, um, you know, guarding the unity in the body, there's so many verses about that, about being diligent even to do that that we have to take that very seriously. And so I do, I talk about that a lot at our church, that we've got people all over the map and their views and perspectives about all of this, but the drum that we keep beating is, yeah, but look beyond all of that. What's important is this body, this church family. We need to care for one another, to love one another, protect and guard the unity of this body with everything that we know. So there can't be any judging of one another, hmm. uh, of whether they are or are not doing something. You search your own heart. And if you're at some extreme over here of being flippant and just, I'm going to, you know, you've made an idol out of freedom, really, was at the end of the day, uh, then, you know, you'd be honest with that, about that with the Lord. You know, that's really what's motivating you, and it's not necessarily courage. 
On the other hand, what's on the other extreme of, of uh, wanting to be cautious, if that's what's driving your, your, your choices, then, then that's a wonderful thing. Honor the Lord in that. But you be honest about your, your own heart as well. Is that really it? Or is I, I'm really I'm struggling with fear. I'm really mm-hmm. not trusting the Lord. So. Bob Whitney. Thank you, Carrie. Acts 20.24. Acts 20.24, and then as soon as you read Acts 20.24, I'd like you to read 1 Timothy 5.23. Now, this is under the themes, our second question. Here's the theme, evangelism slash self-preservation. Evangelism slash self-preservation. If I'm not balancing my life and I'm way over on the side of the teeter-totter in self-preservation, especially with coronavirus and, and other health matters, I won't be as eager to reach out and share the gospel with others because I, I fear that they might, may not be socially distanced enough from me or they're not wearing a mask. So... How would Acts 20, 24 be applicable in this situation, Bob? Acts 20, 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. And here's why. So that I may finish the course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So it's just, uh, this is an amazing passage where Paul's speaking to the elders there at Miletus. And this whole idea that our life, once we become a believer, is not our own. Paul told the Corinthians that he died and rose again on your behalf. And because of that, we live for him and not ourselves. We live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. And... Just think, you know, just to simplify it, it seems like there's two things that we do in that process. Uh, as believers, once we, we become, we know the Lord, and you see this in Paul's life for sure, one is pursuit of holiness, one is sanctification in our life, and the second one is, and they're both journeys, as uh, Andy Davis kind of describes it in his book, uh, an inward and an outward journey. The inward is that pursuit of holiness, of being like Christ, and the outward journey is what you've asked, Lance. It's that advance of the gospel, and it's that ministry that we seek to do here in the church. Uh, as we um, plant new churches, as we fulfill the Great Commission. And so certainly it takes uh, self-denial in that process, that this is not, you know, I'm not living for myself here, I'm living for the Lord. And of course that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, this is such a brief journey as well, and all that he's provided for us. And, uh, but it's difficult because we have a natural bent. You know, our, our natural bent is to do things for ourselves, is autonomy, and that's hard. And I, I just think of the James passage where, yeah. you know, where James actually says, you know, you're planning your life, and you're going to go to this city, and you're going to do that, and you're going to do this and that. And, that's, there's nothing really wrong with any of that, but the problem was, he points out, is you forgot something. And that's really bad news <laughs> as a believer, 
uh, you forgot if the Lord wills that we will do that. And I think if the Lord wills involves evangelism, it involves church planning, it involves glorifying the Lord in our lives so that our, our daily perspective is that, is, is adding if the Lord wills. And James says some pretty serious things about leaving that out. Mm. You know, I mean, he, he says that it is arrogant and it's evil. And uh, we don't naturally think that way, but when we look at that, when we don't consider living for him completely, that's what that is, really. Dr. Zimek he, he, uh, was talking about David's confession in Psalm 51, and he says he's putting on hermatological scuba gear, and he's just diving into confessing his sin. It, it's transgression, it's crossing the line, it's impurity, and he's going, just looking at that, and James says, if you just leave this out of your life, and it's all about you as a believer, not about Christ, and you need to put on a little homartological scuba gear, and he defines that in James 4, and he says, it, it's just arrogant boasting, and it's evil, hmm. and, if that, and it's sin. He identifies it as sin in verse 17. Uh, so, and it's not that, it's, it's really, we know our limitations, and I love the fact, too, that James says in that passage, uh, you don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. Mm. We don't know. We have limited, we are so limited. And, and he's not saying that as a problem to be solved. It's not, you don't know, but you should. No, this is just a reality. We don't know. And that's good. That's okay. That's the way God has designed it. It's a faith walk with him. Mm. Um, but uh, we have got to just simply, as you said, uh, as that verse says, to, uh, to live for him. Such okay, but what about, uh, you've got folks sitting here, you've got folks listening, and they say, yeah, I agree that I'm supposed to not count my life as dear to myself, like Paul says, it's for the sake of the gospel. So if I'm fearful of getting a disease or running my body down, uh, my defenses, uh, my immune system, I have to stay away from all that, even if it's just for a time. I'll get back to the evangelism later. So where do you balance that with what 1 Timothy 5 says about bodily, bodily exercise? In other words, you're taking care of yourself. So what about somebody who just says, look, just as a person is taking care of their, themselves with bodily exercise, I'm just trying to take care of myself with regard to my health. Wear a mask. Don't be around people who might be uh, COVID positive. The Bible says bodily exercise. W what does it say there in 1 Timothy 5? What's the balance, Bob? 1 Timothy 5, and uh, is it 1 Timothy 5? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it? the verse? 8. Four, four. What are you talking about? 1 Timothy 4, 8. 4, 8? Yeah. Oh, it's 4, Did I write the wrong one down? You were talking yeah, about Timothy, Timothy taking four, some eight, medicine in um, 523. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, cool. the, the, no, the point there is he's saying, Paul, the apostle, look, Timothy, you've got some sickness. You've got a stomach issue. So take a little wine for your, for, for your ailment. Somebody's going to say, I'm just uh, taking precautions to get well, to be healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, what's wrong with that? Um, in fact... Because of corona, because of shutdowns, lockdowns, curfews, I'm obeying the government. And therefore, if you're talking about evangelism, that's got to take a back seat to 
these other things because I've got to take care of my body. I've got to take care of my health. I've got to be away from those who could bring me to great sickness, if not even death. Yeah, I think there's certainly, uh, there's certainly room for caution in that and to be aware of. Uh, my wife is a care, caregiver for someone and who is, um, has a, you know, is very frail and, and has some health issues. And so it's hard for, she's, she's being extra careful mm-hmm. because she's with that woman every day and does not want to bring something that would prematurely uh, but I also understand, and this is why it's such a great your idea about the contrast and the balance. You know, it's difficult. I, I, I always think of 1 Corinthians 9 and uh, Paul's zeal for evangelism is, is that he, has, he made himself, what he says there, even a slave of all men. And he sacrifices almost everything about his own life. Uh, in his own life. He, de- he puts it all on the line for himself. There may be times in the cautious aspect of this where we're careful for s- the sake of someone else, mm-hmm. but I certainly don't, don't see that in Paul's life. You, you see his uh, resume of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, and all of that was for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. And uh, he just, he sacrificed and lived, lived that out and suffered greatly for that. And so maybe caution in the area of concern for others, particularly family, relatives, if it's a a job scenario or an elderly parent, uh, all of those kinds of things. But you're right, we had to balance that properly with the mission that God has given us and our willingness to sacrifice and even die for that. Uh, which you see all over Paul's example. Mm-hmm. Dr. Horn, this is, this is something that you have, <clears throat> have led the university and seminary in in terms of protocol. Um, you've got 1,000 university students, let's say, and you're doing everything you can to try to apply general wisdom, even some of the conventional Um, edicts or mandates or guidelines from government officials. Let's say that the Apostle Paul gives in Romans 14 uh, the balance between what we could call right and wrong or peace and judgment passing. There are going to be parents of such students who want you to do the maximum protection for their sweet little ones. There are going to be others who chafe under such restrictions. In Romans 14, what insight does Paul give us about the strong and the weak and who are the strong and the weak? Is the strong person the one wearing a mask? Is the weak one the one wearing the mask? Is the strong one giving up his liberties and putting on a mask? Or is the weak person the mask wearer and he's imploring others to wear masks because they're too lax? How would you answer that? Let's pray, brother. 
You know, Lance, I think that really is quite a quite an interesting text to go to. In fact, this was the text in a meeting I was in very recently that I resorted to or that came to the table. Because it is, it is not a simple, it's not, just, it's not a simple answer. I, if it were a simple answer that were just so clearly that laid out in scripture that there was no room for, you know, that responsible exegesis of a passage would give you the answer. We wouldn't be struggling even on, on this panel to give you the answers to the questions that you want. And part of, the, part of the reason for that is that in certain contexts, there are multi-layered aspects to this. So for example, uh, am I willing to, for the sake of a greater good, embrace an inconvenience? My wife and I and uh, daughter are gonna spend uh, Thanksgiving break in South Carolina with our son and his wife. So, Tomorrow at midnight or Tuesday morning, right after midnight, I'm getting on a Delta flight because I have a real desire to spend time with uh, my son and to be a dad to him and a father-in-law to my daughter-in-law. And in order to do that, I'm gonna have to do something that I may not normally want to do, that I'm not doing here. And I'm gonna have to do that the entire flight. Yeah. So am I sinning when I do that when I get on that plane? <clears throat> am I somehow betraying truth that I actually believe when I put that mask on for the sake of being on that plane? Yeah. Because my choices are, in that given scenario, I can wear a mask and get on that plane and wear it for however many hours you know, for that flight, or I can say, you know what, I actually don't think they help. I really don't believe, because if I actually believe that by not wearing a mask, I was endangering the brothers on this stage, I would wear a mask, if I actually believe that. Right. But for the sake of another higher good, I'm willing to be inconvenienced uh, for a period of time. So am I in some way a weak brother because I do that? Am I a strong brother because I say, you know what, I'm just not gonna get on that plane. Yeah. I, I don't know that it's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, the, the passage in Romans 14 is not talking about mask wearing. So whatever we do with that text has to be by means of an application maybe one or two times removed from yeah. the original issue there. Right. And the original issue had to do with two groups of people coming from very different backgrounds, Romans 14 and 15, and they were wrestling over what had been clearly revealed in a certain portion of scripture, the Old Testament, with regard to eating certain foods, not eating certain foods, drinking uh, certain wines, etc. And so, if you came as a Jew, that was your scripture. You were not supposed to eat certain foods. And you were supposed to observe certain days. And you could argue that because you, among other things, disregarded what God's word actually told you to do about those things in the Old Testament, there came a time where God burned the city of Jerusalem over it and drove his people out. So, I mean, you had a group of people who had been schooled up in that and who have a history in their nation of what happened to people when they disregarded the food laws and the drink laws and the day laws, 
And so they're going, okay, now that we know Messiah has come and we've embraced him and we are followers of him, he did not tell us not to do those things, or at least not clearly. Yeah. So we believe that as Christians following this new salvation that we have embraced and we wholly embrace that, but we still have to observe the food laws. And it didn't help that, you know, by the time Romans is being written, you had a whole group of, of uh Jewish Christians that have been driven out of Rome by the Claudian edict, right. and now the church has been left in Gentile hands, and they have embraced the same Messiah, they have embraced the same salvation, but they didn't have that history. In fact, their right. whole life had been about eating and drinking and observing tons of days, right? right. And so right. all of a sudden, now you have, you have a conflict as this church comes back together, and I think that's really what Romans 14 and 15 is all yep. about, and at the end of the segment, particularly at the front of uh, chapter 15, Paul says, here's the big goal, that, that Jew and Gentile would come together and worship in unity and in harmony before the Lord. And in order to get there, you need 14 and 15. So the, the, That's right. the, the teaching of 14 and 15 is designed to this unity. It's not designed primarily to settle the question about food and drink as much as it is to bring unity and harmony in that particular body at that particular mm -hmm. time. And so uh, for the weak are being defined, not, not necessarily saying, you know, there's something morally wrong with you, they're just simply uh, being reminded that there are people in that congregation who come out of that background whose conscience will not allow them to disregard the food laws and the, 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 the Sabbath laws that were written down for them in the Old Testament. And there was another group of people who did not have that conscience problem. When they, right. when they ate certain foods, uh, or they didn't observe a certain day quite the way that their Jewish brother did, it wasn't a matter of conscience for them. Their conscience didn't smite them. Right. So when it comes to a strong and a weak conscience in this text, that's the background. Right? It, it is a group of people who could point to Scripture and say, this is really what we're being told. So if, if Dr. Horn, who excellently answered that question, is challenging us, don't automatically think that what they were doing back then is completely parallel to what we're doing now. But the principles are still available for us to follow. And look at your Bibles. Look at Romans chapter 14. And look at the principles. That's why I, I phrased it, peace and then judgment passing. Because look at the text. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 3. Here's the principle. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Pass judgment. That is repeated. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Whether it's mask wearing or no mask wearing, whether it's Sabbath days keeping, no Sabbath days keeping, whether it's some other matter, the principle is don't pass judgment on one another as though you are the judge of your brother or sister. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Third time it's mentioned. So Paul's a broken record. Verse 13 Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Verse 17, 
For the kingdom of God is not, as Dr. Horn said, a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, and here's that word, and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, the peace of the fellowship, the non-fracturing of the fellowship. And then peace is mentioned again, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Dr. Horn? Yeah, and I would, I would come back to this text, Lance, and add to what you've said there, the fact that there, there was a monumental thing that had happened. And you read about it in Acts 11, right? The, yes. the Lord had gave, given to Peter a very specific revelation about the things that were written down in the Old Testament that yes. were, for an Old Testament believer, unclean. If you ate these things, you were ritually impure. And it affected your ability to go in to the temple of God and to be with the people of God. So here comes this vision, and, and God is very, very clear with Peter, with Peter, the things that I am now declaring clean don't continue to declare unclean. Right. So there's a change that has happened. And that change has not necessarily totally come to be fully understood by certain people here. And right. so what I would, the caveat that I would, under, what, would, would say here is this. If somebody is coming along now and saying to the Gentiles, for eating that food, you are sinning, yes. that's a problem that has to be corrected yeah. with Scripture. And that's what Paul does here. He says... Um, I know, verse 14, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. And, and it's interesting to me that he's, he doesn't say, I know in my own heart. He actually grounds his knowledge in something that Jesus has done, right? I am persuaded yep. of this in the Lord Jesus, um, that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, that would be knowledge to an Old Testament believer that would be new. And, and hard to swallow. And, and very difficult to swallow. Yeah. But that knowledge has come down from God to Peter and is now available, and Paul is actually verifying it, and he's now inscripturating it for the Romans. So this conflict between the eaters and the non-eaters is actually now being corrected theologically by a statement here in verse 14. Nevertheless, he says, for the sake of meat, don't destroy something bigger than the meat. Don't destroy the kingdom of of God. Don't destroy the work, the kingdom work that is being replicated in your midst and is supposed to be actually displayed in the body of the church to the city of Rome. So for the eating of meat, don't destroy that. So don't judge one another, understand one another, welcome one another, don't sit in judgment. Those of you who, whose conscience doesn't smite you for eating this meat or, or not observing this day, um, Welcome the weaker brother whose conscience doesn't have that freedom. And the idea of weaker there is in, in, in this area, their conscience is, is restricted. That's how I define weaker and stronger. Right. Whose conscience in this area is more restricted and whose conscience isn't, as long as they are within the boundaries of what God's Word actually teaches. Which then you can say, whether it's mask wearing, no mask wearing, um, COVID prohibitions or allowances, or any other thing that's in the ministry of a church or what you're yeah. contending with in the world, plug in those things that we're grappling with as the passage can have plug outs like Sabbath occurrences, certain eating certain, certain foods. Therefore, the principles are do not pass judgment on your brothers and seek for peace in the fellowship even if you have to be stretched 
to grow. Peter, in that Acts example, told the Lord himself, Lord, I'm kosher. I, I've never eaten these things before. These animals that, that are coming down on this tent, I've never eaten it, and I'm not going to. How many times did Peter have to say, Lord, I'm not going to do it, and the Lord said, yes, you are. How many times? Three mm-hmm. times. Yeah. It took him time yeah, Lance, to figure it out. It's interesting. In this, it, so I, one of the big takeaways for me studying this passage is, in some areas, I could be a weak brother. Mm-hmm. In other areas, I could be a strong brother. This is not a That's blanket right. statement about you're strong and you're weak. That's right. This is, this is with regard to a particular issue and your conscience. So when it comes to the issue that you asked me about, one of the things that, that's been incredibly important to me with our students is to actually uh, stand for the truth as I understand it, but at the same time recognize there are people who for whatever reasons are going to have a different posture than the one I would normally have as a person, right? right. So we may have students there who in their own minds are, you know what, I don't, I don't need to wear a mask, but their parents are saying to them, now look, when you go there, for whatever reason, I want you to wear a mask. Right. And so I'm gonna say to them, you need to honor your parents. This is something that, this is a little bigger principle here. You're not right. violating a truth when you put a mask on, um, but if you're, if you're actually, articulating a view that is not true, then we need to talk about that. You know, we can't, we can't, we can't advance falsehood at the, just for convenience, but at the same time, uh, we do recognize that some of you have certain things. That, for example, in our tiny little community, uh, there are 400 homes around them, and many of those people are bound up in the very fear that, Carrie, you were talking about. They are fearful of death. Yes. And they look at our students, and they think you are, because they buy the narrative, you are the death spreaders. You know, I said that to some student leaders in their eyes. <laughs> right? And so, while we're not asking you to wear masks everywhere on campus, there are certain places for the sake of unity in our community that we're asking you to. Yeah. Right? Now, that doesn't always get remembered by them, so we have to remind them. And so there's a little joke, well, coronavirus only happens on the front side of campus. And it never happens up. Well, you know, you have to deal with that. But at the end right. of the day, sometimes you do something for the sake of something else. Right. And for the sake of the unity and harmony of our little community, many of them who would not wear masks themselves, but think we should, or for the sake of the gospel opportunity to them, or just for the sake of, of not having a hassle with the L.A. County Health Department. Right. We're asking you to do this. Now, if I'm coming along and saying to them, this is a matter of faith, I've crossed the line. Right. And, and I've done something that Paul says not to do here. So it's, it's you know, sort of like you're dancing on the edge of a very thin line, but I think Romans 14 and 15 actually gives us, at least it has to me, it's given me some help with that. Excellent. Chris Brunziel, speaking of the narrative, Dr. Horn mentioned the narrative. We're all very familiar, if you're a news watcher, current narrative themes. Chris, let's call this worldly awareness and worldly abstinence. Worldly awareness, being aware of what's happening in my world, Mm -hmm. but also being careful to abstain from certain knowledge bases of such awareness that could change my narrative or threaten to change my narrative from a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. Here's the question. 
how much time slash impact of professing believers in Jesus who seem to watch more news and current events than they do spending their time reading and pondering scripture. Ooh, good. Do you have a passage and for me? The passage is 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 10, where it talks about destroying strongholds, mm-hmm. verses 1 to 6. That would be, you're actually going into the lion's den to know and refute strongholds. So you have to know what the strongholds are in order to refute them. So you have to know some of these worldly things in order to destroy them. But then there's another passage in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10, that speaks of not following silly myths. So how do you balance the idea of worldly awareness? I know what's out there, but I don't let it so command my attention that it's beginning to influence my worldview against a biblical worldview, including at times, and we all know it, silly myths, whether it's about health or other related matters, that can actually make Christians sound like they're non-Christians. Right. Uh, shall I read the yeah. passage first? So I'm going to read Second Corinthians 10, 3 through, I'll go down to verse 6. Is that right? Yeah. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. our war, first of all, is not against people. It's against the arguments. I think that's important for us to remember. Um, but because we are helping walking with people as shepherds or just with our friends, we do need to know what's out there to some degree. Um, we need to know the arguments because we need to know what, what deception is out there so we can answer it with the truth, so we can provide guidance from God's word. We need to be uh, people based on Scripture. We need to just be driven right away to, to God's Word for hope and for help. Um, going to, uh, I'm going to answer part of the question, too. You talked about what is, what is the balance. I think it's different for different people. I mean, for those who are looking to equip the body, to equip the saints, we have to dig a little bit more. Um, but we also have to know our own hearts. I tell people, and I've said this before, I don't watch that much news. I, I have a, a personality that wants to argue, and I start talking to the TV, and my wife one day will say, Chris, they can't hear you. I said, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, but we do have to know what it's doing to our own hearts, and if that's what drives our thinking and, and what we get drug into all the time. Um, but it, it does mean it should drive us to the Word. What would I say to somebody who holds to this, to my next-door neighbor? I have neighbors who uh, don't agree with our stance, but I want to know how to interact with them because we have the truth, we have the hope in Jesus Christ, and we mean that for every area of life. And so we do need to know what's out there to some degree, but then say, well, what does God say about this? What are the real issues? They're labeling it this way, but how would Scripture frame it? So... 
Um, I, I think you have to measure if you're being driven by anger, if this really dominates your thinking, if you become a person who's uh, angry most of the time. That's not good. And you're listening, you switch over to your favorite channel to get the, to get the counter-argument and to have all the, you know, the statistics in place. And that's not the right thing to do. You've got to be driven to Scripture because we have to remember that God's Word is supposed to give us that sense of, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So if we're losing that, that means we are, we are being run by uh, the, the search uh, for the next best argument and how to win against people. But this is against arguments. So the balance uh, is getting to God's word. I mean, we have to be in God's word daily. We, we are, we're in a culture, the air we breathe is man's wisdom. And so my question to, and I do counseling, so I'm constantly talking to people just saying, well, how much are you in God's word just for your own benefit? You know, you don't need to know every argument that's out there. You need to know God's word better because that's how you sniff out the counterfeits. So what is the balance? I think it's yeah. different for different people. Um, different, again, for shepherds, we, we have a, a, a different role to some degree. Um, but the, the, the marching orders for all of us is we need to be in God's sufficient word because it answers all of life's questions. And if you don't think it does, it means you haven't been in it enough. And, and, and talk to your pastors and let's go find hope and help together. So the balance may be in what you said, be aware of what's out there, mm-hmm. but do your best to take regular spiritual baths. Feasts. Because you've got to wash that off of yourself yes. so that it doesn't make you dirty and unclean yourself in terms of the arguments influencing you more than you're helping others refute the arguments. That's right. Here's a question, Jerry Rack. And this does go along with the idea of these strongholds, these arguments. Amos chapter 5, let justice roll down like mighty waters. A lot of talk today about social justice. Jerry give insight for Christians to various terms. Explain them briefly and how Scripture carries a correction or a clarifier about such terms because the terms themselves sound not only plausible but right, like justice, like Amos 5. Here are some of those terms. Social justice, racism, or we all know there's only one race. Let's call it Ethnic divisions, ethnicities, those are two. And then here's another one that you might not be as familiar with, critical race theory and intersectionality. Jerry, help us, help Christians understand those things from a biblical perspective. Okay. (laughs) It's a... It's, it gets convoluted, first of all, because of just my dear brother here mentioning that we don't become aware enough. I found that when we did a critical thinking series, just the opening two messages on how to critically think was uh, particularly helpful for the masses because uh, you're hearing terms, but as Lance said, you're hearing them with your grid, so they sound feasible. 
but behind them are ideologies and subtle schemes the Bible cautions us not to be ignorant of. So social justice um, obviously has become a massive movement, but, but basically if you wanted to boil down the whole movement and just sort of take yourself out of trying to define all the terms, because even in the social justice movement, they don't define them the same way. If you boil down the issue, it has to do with their view of compassion and how they use it as a manipulative tool. So they define, the world defines compassion different than the scriptures define it. Christians clearly know compassion having come to Christ. We know divine compassion personally. Uh, the Spirit produces divine compassion in us so that James can say in James 1.27 that pure and undefiled religion expresses itself in those ways that people typically have to be motivated by money to express. Christians don't have to be motivated by anything other than the gospel to visit orphans and widows, to take care of people in society that are downtrodden, even to look at somebody and their need and not close your heart to them, 1 John 3, but, but to love in deed and truth. Your heart goes there as a Christian. Well, the world defines compassion differently. The world defines compassion not as individual works of kindness and compassion and reaching out to somebody, but as class groups or class distinctions or distinctives. In other words, in the social justice movement, like the critical race theory movement and like intersectionality, uh, individuals don't exist. Now, the individual, as I'll say in a moment, becomes the god in the matter through what they call essentialism and what they call standpoint theory, which you'll know from Romans 1 just is making yourself a god. Uh, that's how the Bible speaks of it. But at the same time, these are all related. So the social justice movement comes out of the same ideology that basically says there's an oppressed class and there's a non-oppressed class. And you decide which class you're a part of if you can prove you're on the oppressed side. And you have some sort of Gnostic knowledge about who the oppressors are in your culture and in your society. And once you identify with that victimized group, now you have a basis for demanding what you call compassion or what you call justice or social justice. If you get into the movement and ask them, how is it you decided that you were in the victimized class? And how is it that you've decided these people, no matter what they do individually, are part of an oppressive class? They don't have to give an answer to that. They define the grid that decides who is in which class, and they are always the victimized class. Once you become a victimized class, you don't have the ability to tell me you're a part of the victimized class unless you toe the party line, say the things that they say, demand the things that they demand. Speak if their language. If you don't use their language and demand yeah. what they're demanding, you're the oppressive class automatically. That's pretty convenient. It's very convenient, and on the race issue, that's what stirred up the whole race thing. It was never really about ultimately race, as I'll just give you a couple of historical pieces that will be important to plug into that issue. It was never really about race. What it was about was someone saying, I'm a victim, and you're the one victimizing me. Well, I've never, been, I've never done anything racist. That doesn't matter. Now it's gone so far as to say you're born with a particular skin color, you're the oppressive class, period. 
That's the way it is. Until you admit that and bow the knee to the victimized class, you're, 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 you're proving it. If you deny it, you're proving it. <laughs> now you say, well, what in the world? What is, where, is all, where are we getting this kind of stuff? Because the Bible does say that Christians take care of the downtrodden. We have compassion for the... God loves justice, right? Micah says it very clearly. To do justly and to love mercy. Well, nobody but Christians know these things better. But even in the common grace of God, human beings can express compassion and care for people. The world does a lot of that really well without the Spirit of God. Uh, they just don't know why they do it ultimately, or they don't know the selfishness with which they do it, and ultimately no faith, so they, they can't please God in it. But where is all this stuff coming from? Well, you need to understand that, that in our contemporary society, if you go back to 1970 to a man named Derek Bell, Derek Bell was a racist. Derek Bell decided that the civil rights movement didn't go far enough, and he wanted to demonstrate that even if racism was, was outlawed and considered illegal, uh, which it was, that was not enough because people were still racist. And because there's people that are still racist, he's going to put them in a class. And it's not just going to be economic uh, concern, disparities in economics and salaries and things like that. It's going to become sort of this personal you hate me sort of thing. Well, he had a little disciple named Kimberly Crenshaw. And about 10 years, 15 years after him, she wrote on this issue and developed critical race theory. Critical race theory was Derrick Bell's sort of next generation ideology, which was no longer about economic disparity. It was about this finding a class of people that is oppressing you and demanding things from them. If that weren't enough, Kimberly Crenshaw had another disciple named Patricia Williams who then developed it in its full, satanic, godless idea, which is what they call standpoint theory or essentialism. Basically, it's this. You'll understand it right away biblically as, as a problem. They basically say that your essential self is... is, um, is Dominant. It's a sovereign. The essential self is sovereign. It's what they call your standpoint. You have a standpoint of your life, and everyone else must reference you from that standpoint, your standpoint. So how do you get to your standpoint? Well, it's, it's a variety of things. It, the intersection of who, of who you've become, well, you had this upbringing, and you had this experience, and you had this job, and you had this family, and you had these people that oppressed you, and these people that mistreated you. And so that's the intersection of who you are, and that becomes your standpoint. Now, they only go one step further and say, if you marginalize me at any point for this essential who I am grid, then you are part of the oppressive class, and, and so that's why they're demanding... Um, identity politics, you got to call me by this name. You gotta, I mean, the, the intersections of a person's essential who they are are as, they're just as wild and as, as multiple as you could possibly imagine human beings could invent. So with, with, with that in mind, Jeff Kratz, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about certain divisions, like Jew-Gentile divisions. 
what is the biblical answer to, to Jerry's historical account of how it came about and how the Apostle Paul speaks of it in the Jew-Gentile context. So you might call it something like this. It's, a, it's an erecting walls of division. That's what sin is. That's what Romans 1 right. says. But in Christ, there's an abolishing of such division so that Jew and Gentile can be prosperous in Christ from their ethnicity standpoint. Not standpoint theory, but And it's an abolishing of the self. Correct. As some sort of demigod, some sort of As the exalted one in the relationship. Well, I think the, the way that you built the question, step one, step two, from Jerry to myself, is instructive because... Uh, where Jerry, you've done uh, you know obvious research and and thought through the technicalities from the where the world builds its paradigms to um, build intersectionality, which is not only to build the victim but also to stigmatize the privileged, right? The person whose intersections makes that the oppressor as much as the victim. And so, if you find yourself as the oppressor, what defense can you give? on those um, standpoints because of these ideological, um, really satanic um, paradigms or fortresses that need to be destroyed. Um, These are all that are being built up and I really believe it is deeply satanic. And I believe that we have the antidote in Ephesians 2. Read it for us. And I love it. So I I love the fact that I get the, the Bible answer because we have our Bibles. So Ephesians 2, where am I reading from where to where? Uh, wherever you, oh, okay. you want to, but okay, well, verse, let me, start verse 11. Okay. Well, let, let me just um, start with verse 1, and then I'll jump down. All right. Because, because this, is, this is the crux of the issue. Mm-hmm. And you were dead in the trespass, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you can go on from there. But then you get to 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now the application and the issue, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Maybe we can stop there. Yeah. The dividing wall being broken is at core issue the fact that sin has been resolved no matter where you come from. You know, there's neither 
um, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female in Christ, we're all co-equal heirs. Well, that verse in Galatians doesn't take away those labels in and of themselves. If you're a man, you're a man. If you're a woman, you're a woman. Right? If you're a barbarian, you're a barbarian. If you're a Scythian, you're a Scythian, wherever you're coming from. If you came from a Gentile background as an uncircumcised but born-again believer, not by works, not through um, learning the Old Testament law, not, not as a Jew but a, a Gentile convert, you're still a Gentile, but you're in Christ. And likewise for the Jew that came out of um, a, an old covenant system now brought into Christ. The dividing wall is, is lowered. Uh, this hits home personally to me. I was in a forum, in a setting in my church up in Anchorage where a lady came in, a um, single African-American lady who was teaching critical race theory um, in, a, in a context up there. And she is a, a lovely Christian woman, loves the Lord, um, but had so been influenced by what she was teaching on a secular level, even as a born-again believer, that she was, she was in a setting with me with an elder and his wife, and, and we're talking, and she was wanting me to understand her position and what we should do as a church to diffuse racism, because she was saying our culture and our country is involved in systemic racism, and is our church now involved in systemic racism because I wasn't speaking openly, preaching from the pulpit to refute it. And so I'm sitting there with that conundrum. And the idea was I was supposed to read and research on this enough to then respond to her and to our church. Whereas, and I'm just boiling things you know, down to the least common denominator, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, I just know what I know because I start with the Bible. And I know that's sort of a standard answer, but that's all I felt like I needed to help her and to understand who we are in Christ. She is my sister in Christ. No one had to teach me how not to be racist. God melted my heart so that I can love anyone, anybody. And Anchorage is such a melting pot if you've not been up there. It's one of the most diverse um, little pinpricks on the globe that I um, know of. The public schools there are as diverse. They're the most diverse public schools in all of our country. Uh, Alaska, as you know, is part of our country. Non-contiguous, but it's still... It got its statehood a few years ago. And, uh, and I'm up there, but it... It's a, it is an interesting place. You have people from the South with oil, people who come from, formerly BP was there, ConocoPhillips. You have British Petroleum, you have Brits that are there, you have Asians that are there through fishing. You have Alaska Native culture, where all the Native American Indian heritage um, traces itself back to these Alaska Natives. And, and that's a race um, dimension in our world up there, probably more than African American and Caucasian. I come from the South. I'm from Virginia and grew up in the 70s and schools were desegregated, but there were still hangover issues from all of that that I grew up in and, and um, grew up in school systems that were integrated, um, black and white. And, you know, you, you, you learn love one for another in Christ. 
And you, you don't, I don't believe as a, as a Christian, have to indoctrinate yourself with the world's ideology to get that. You just get it because the, the wall has dropped. Yeah, so uh, we, have, we have Christ in common. I, I actually love the idea that, you know, that heaven, it, it gives that distinction of ethnicities. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation around the throne of God worshiping in that beautiful kaleidoscope of worship where, we'll, where, where the differences are celebrated. There's beauty in race. There's beauty in being different. And then there's beauty in how everything is just one and we're together in the gospel and immediately you have affection and fellowship because you understand Ephesians 2 and you understand that you're born again. Then if you're a reformed evangelical, you even get some deeper fellowship. And you're like talking, talking the same language and it's like, man, you know, we, we are one. And that happens when you go on, on the mission field and you're singing the same hymns and songs right. because it's just philosophy and ministry. It comes out of what you believe. So what, what anyway. Jeff is just talking about in terms of our relationship to each other can also fracture so easily because of our political candidate preferences. Does anybody relate to that? Bruce. Yes, sir. From Titus 3. Hold on, let me. I'm the only one up here with a phone, so you said Titus what? Titus 3. Titus. That comes after 2 Timothy. Got it. <laughs> Especially because we've just had a national election. Yes. And there are certain candidates and certain assumptions that one, if he or her, he or she is a, is a Christian, cannot endorse a certain candidate as over against another. Christians can not only disagree but fracture over it. They can be very mean-spirited toward each other. What does Titus 3 have to tell us about such things? Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. As I've listened to the whole discussion, I'm simple, my, my brain sort of boils things down. And I do think in politics and in social norms and in interaction with our secular counterparts, I think that what Jeff Crott said is the defining goal in the sense that we have been born again, we have been washed, we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, allowed to participate with Christ in his death so that our lives for ourselves in this world 
come to an end and we're raised in Christ to live with him forever. And I just think that all of this virus and social justice and everything just represents the magnet of our flesh to the world. Mm. That we are, we're, we're alive but we're not and we, we cannot help but be provoked by the things that our flesh would naturally gravitate to. And politics, as you asked, uh, is such an emotional uh, low cookie on the, sh- on the shelf. It's a t-ball sitting right up there. And it's the easiest thing in the world to let your heart run after what's going to happen to our culture, what's going to happen to our, our society. And the challenge of regeneration, if so be that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, the challenge of that is to come out from among the world and to be separate. Mm. That doesn't mean to not vote. It doesn't mean to not care. I grew up in the 60s, and it was uh, socially unacceptable to even ask someone who they voted for. The voting booth was a, a sacred place where you went in and you processed your thoughts and your conscience and you pulled the lever. Uh, I don't intentionally avoid politics and I don't intentionally express in my mind on what might be a more ethical or moral direction of a particular politician, but in my heart I'm constantly trying to pull the professing believer back to Christ back to the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, the fracturing here is sort of like a, 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 it's almost like a good thing because it flushes stuff out in, in the open where you can get a look at someone who says, I'm not wearing a mask or I'm gonna wear a mask or you know, social justice is my thing or I'm not gonna vote for a Democrat or I'm not gonna vote for a Republican. And a lot of times I think for us as believers, it's just sort of a tether to reach them, to pull them back to the gospel, to ask of them the true priorities of their heart mm. and what they, what they really love. So That's a great, great answer. Todd, last question. And Todd will base the amount of minutes on his answer to the question because he's going to close us with his own song. So he's going to gauge how long his answer will be. I've heard him over here since we've been talking. <laughs> he's been saying, run clock, go clock. <laughs> keep, keep talking, Jerry. That's right. We can count on you. Speaking of what Bruce just gave as an excellent answer, some people can go even further, not just than political party affiliation and voting, not just... Um, you know, riots and, and social unrest and justice, but also churches that are choosing not to follow county, state, country guidelines who are defying the government, though most Christians don't understand that we also have not a political process per se, but a judicial or legal process in which via Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3, gives us the opportunity to litigate, to seek First Amendment constitutional redress, etc., which isn't automatically a defying of your government. So there are nuances here. 
There are even scriptural examples. The midwives in Exodus 1. The Acts 4, we shall obey God rather than man. Um, John the Baptist, who told the leader of his day, you should not have her. He's, he's chastising the king, president, as it were, on moral grounds. So the scripture gives ways and means to defy, both on moral grounds and sometimes on legal grounds. The apostle Paul in Acts 22, 3, 4, and 5 made appeals at a, as a citizen to have a judicial hearing not only to communicate the gospel, but to say, I'm a citizen of Rome and you're mistreating me. So how would you give us wisdom to help Christians understand that it's not as easy as don't ever defy the government in any way, follow all guidelines, do everything you're told, get in line and never divert, versus I don't care what our government says at all in any way, and I'm going to do my own thing. And if my church doesn't do that, they're being spineless. They're evangelifish. <laughs> so with the, with the 14 seconds you have left, how would you help Christian? Because clearly this is a dividing moment, not just in our country, but in local churches. Mm -hmm. Well, I think comparison to church history at times is, is, is bogus because we have, I, I'm not aware of any litigation, any law, any mandate yet that has absolutely made it, that you can look at as genuine persecution. And if you decide that inconveniences, or again, to summarize Romans 14 and 15, where the law of love, you know, guides us, these are, am I saying, I'm not saying that I don't see the handwriting on the wall. I just don't, I've appreciated the way our elders have taken a, a modest approach that says we want to we wanna deal with reality and perception, how, how our community would even perceive us as, as uncaring, no matter what I think the scientific relevance is or, or reality is or is not. Um, I, I think it's to, to accuse the church of being spineless because they choose to comply with what has amounted to inconveniences for the most part. Uh, we've been able to be technologically connected, we've been able to be creative, we've been able to be thoughtful, and I, I just think it's too, we're too quick to say this is persecution. We're not being singled out, it isn't just Christian churches. I mean, you can talk about Certain issues you're allowed to riot and gather in big crowds and others not. I, I get it. I see it. I think it's coming. I think the encroachment is on its way. Just don't think we're there yet where we could say, you forbade me to worship my God. You forbade me to minister to my people. But if it does help any to peek into history, to gather wisdom from the past, I mean, you, you can look at others that would say, you, you had some who would say, I, I, go to the English Reformation, I, I don't you know how we would like to say, I don't care. If you don't tell me what to preach, I'll go preach in Rome. You know, if I'll go to the Pope and preach if you don't tell me what, you know, what I can say. There were some, no doubt, believers who would just simply have said, look, the, the, the king or the queen declaring themselves head of the church, as long as they're not going to control my pulpit, I don't care. But the majority of our brothers said, no, that's the, that's the narrow end of the wedge. And so, but I don't think we are yet to say our president has declared himself Lord of the church. 
Uh, and there we'd have to draw that line. In, in the New Testament, it was men wouldn't even say, all, all we're asking you to say is Caesar is Lord. Just say it. You don't even have to mean it. Just say it. Our brothers and sisters died saying, I will not say Caesar is Lord. So we're not there yet. Uh, I think it's coming. It, and I have all the fears and concerns and I'm trying to deal with my heart now on the front end of being willing to part with comforts and the way I pictured my retirement, playing with my grandkids and going to Scotland and I think that life is over, yeah. but we're not there yet. I, I haven't seen, so I'm not sure that's as direct an answer as you were looking for, but the, the scriptural principle is we obey the government that God placed over us until they say to me, you must disobey God. Whether it is right to obey you or God, the apostle said, you decide, but we're going to have to do what God said. You said, don't preach. I'm sorry. I have to preach. I'm a submissive citizen. Meanwhile, use all the, we're in a democracy, use all the means you can to affect good laws and to vote, et cetera, to be involved. But in the end, we're, we'll submit to the government until they cross God's law. And some of our brothers and sisters say being inconvenienced at church and you, you know, not being able to gather, that for them, that's that line personally or asking for a, a personal perspective. I don't, I don't think we're there yet, okay. but I don't think we're far. Father, thank you for the ministry of the body of Christ to one another and how it brings glory to you. May we continue to be vessels of that kind of encouragement to one another to help those who are out of line to be admonished, to bring their life back in conformity with Scripture, to help those who are weak to, to, to come alongside them and cling to them in a permanent and dedicated way. And to those who are small-souled, discouraged to breathe the life of truth into them. May we be like Christ who was prophesied in Isaiah 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. So Lord, train our tongues, train our ears so that we can, we can be that to one another. And we think finally about what Paul said to admonish the unruly, help the faint-hearted, cling to the weak. Be patient with all men. Lord, we also think in the light of all that we've discussed this morning, I think about the admonition of Psalm 37, do not fret because of evildoers. It only leads to evil doing. So help us live and be joyful and evangelize, <clears throat> but not to fret. We know who the king is. We know where we're headed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.